A reading from Mark, chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. A leper came to him begging him, and kneeling he said to him, if you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word, so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter. Has anybody been watching the uh, Philip Pullman His Dark Materials uh, trilogy, or as it's being uh, televised on BBC? Uh, we caught up with the final one last night, having been recording these uh, in the run-up to Christmas. Well, I read the original uh, trilogy some years ago, 
And I think that the adaptation that the BBC have done has been absolutely superb, actually far better than the Nicole Kidman film. If you've not come across these books and this story, they're set in an alternative universe, which is a bit like our own, but with some significant differences. Not least, people's souls are visible, and they're personified as, as uh, animals, different kinds of animals. And a lot of the story focuses around whether a person can exist in separation from their soul. And this provides an opportunity for Philip Pullman to address some fairly profound questions about what it means to be human. For a self-professed atheist, that is Philip Pullman, not me, uh, I have always found that his writing shows a deeply spiritual side. And within the books, one of the characters is known as the authority. And the authority is first encountered as the spiritual head and focus of the church. And for a while, it looks as though the authority is the His Dark Materials universe's equivalent to God. Eventually, and a bit of a plot spoiler here, but not too bad, eventually it becomes clear that the authority is actually an imposter posing as God, exercising political power through the structures of the church that serve him. And the critique that Pullman constructs here of the dogmatic, power-focused abuse of religion that we meet in our world is obvious. But what particularly interested me as I was preparing to preach on our passage today from Mark's Gospel was the fact that Pullman named this character the authority. I don't know if you noticed it in the readings, but one of the key debates surrounding Jesus' teaching and actions was the question of where he got his authority from. And we will find ourselves coming back to this again and again as we go through the gospel over the next few months. And it's clear that as far as Mark is concerned, the authority of Jesus is a central issue. One of the enigmas of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is frequently described as a preacher and a teacher. But as we read through the gospel, we find it gives us almost no record of what it was that Jesus actually said. Matthew and Luke attempt to fix this, of course, by adding various blocks of teaching into Mark's basic structure. So passages such as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke uh, are added in by the, the later gospels to try and flesh out a bit of Jesus' teaching. John's Gospel takes a different approach altogether and ignores Mark's Gospel completely and just offers a very different narrative of Jesus' ministry and teaching. But we're focusing on Mark, which is going to be our Gospel for this year. And in Mark, we get no real hint of what it is that Jesus actually teaches. We keep getting told that he's preaching and teaching, but we don't get the record of it. All we really know, in terms of what Mark gives us, is that it is a new message which contrasts significantly with the preaching of the scribes. And the contrast is that Jesus' teaching has an authority. 
which the teaching of the scribes lacked. So Jesus preaches with authority. But authority to do what? And we might well ask, given that we don't get to hear Jesus actually preaching or teaching at all. We would find some clues, maybe, if we read a bit further on in the Gospel. So in chapter 2, verse 10, we discover that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. But in our reading for this morning, we get our first glimpse of what will become the dominant aspect of Jesus' teaching and message in Mark's Gospel, which is that he has authority over unclean spirits. He can reverse their effects on the people that they afflict. So in the first of the stories in our reading today, we encounter Jesus casting the unclean spirit out of the man in the synagogue. So Jesus has gone into the synagogue to teach, and the people who are gathered there we are told are astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority not like the scribes. And then after he's cast the unclean spirit out of the man, Mark tells us that the people witnessing this were all amazed and they kept asking one another, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And it's the contrast with the scribes here that's crucial. It's the scribes' synagogue, but it turns out they have no authority in their own space. Only Jesus seems to have the authority. So, you see, we might well ask why it is, after all, that a man with an unclean spirit is in a synagogue in the first place. Why haven't the scribes already done something about him before? Either, surely, according to their rules, they should have cast the unclean spirit out themselves, or they should have cast the man out of the synagogue. He simply shouldn't have been there. Because one of the priestly purity code rules that governs the scribes' behavior was that unclean people should be kept away from holy places, such as the synagogue. But the scribes had neither healed him nor had they cast him out. It seems the scribes simply had no authority to resolve this situation in either direction. And the scribes are trapped in a system of their own making, where the unclean person is perpetually present, yet perpetually othered. Always there, but not fully there. And to understand this, I think it's worth spending a few moments with the scribes to try and get to grips with the basis for their authority. So the scribes in the first century context of uh, first century Judaism were kind of the priests of their world. Their job was maintaining the worship life in the synagogues and their authority derived, at least in their eyes, from their careful custodianship of the scriptures and the many additional texts that detailed how the Hebrew Bible was to be interpreted and applied. However, as is so often the case, with those who look for a legalistic basis for their authority, they were the kinds of leaders who had learned to play the populist game, to ensure that no one ever had the temerity to question their interpretation of the sacred texts. So the scribes had become skilled in the rhetoric of othering, in strategies of apartness, They knew how to whip up the mob majority into supporting whatever proposal it was that they were offering to solve their society's ills. You see, the true basis for the scribes' authority wasn't actually the scriptures. It was just their ability to manipulate and control the mob, 
And of course, a mob-mandated solution is rarely good news. Populist leaders who base their spurious claims to authority on appeals to the masses are always bad news for minorities, for those who get to be othered, set apart and sent packing as the easy and obvious scapegoats for whatever it is that ails the majority. We see this often in our world, in the populist dog whistle rhetoric of politicians who tell us that if only we could deal with the insert unpopular minority here, then order and prosperity will be restored to society. It almost doesn't matter who's blamed on the, all the grounds on which they're scapegoated, but ethnicity and education and culture and ability and dependency are all popular targets. And the scribes of our day are very good at defending their own rightness according to the letter of the law, all the while casting aspersions on those whom the law was never very good at defending in the first place. This is where you end up if you base your authority on popular appeals to the masses. It's true in our world, and it was true in the first century. And the scribes ruled the roost and defended their power with a carefully constructed system of scapegoating whereby they could blame anything that went wrong on those whom their interpretation of the law declared unclean. And the people went along with it because taking a stand against such a system is to run the risk of being declared unclean yourself, of becoming the next target for othering. So is this the mob's fault? Do people simply get the leaders they deserve? Do we? Well, at one level, yeah, of course, without popular support, populist leaders fall. But at another level, the mob are as much a victim of the oppressive system as they are the sustainers of it. So, in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus starts teaching a new message with a different authority basis, which breaks the power of sin over people's lives and restores back to community those who have been ostracized by the scribes, the mob start to show an interest because it opens for them the possibility of their own emancipation. And so we come to Jesus teaching in the synagogue and confronting this man with an unclean spirit. Have you been wondering why the scribes were keeping an unclean man in the synagogue? They lacked the authority or motivation to declare him clean, but they hadn't cast him out either. And the answer, it seems to me, is that he was useful to them. He was their on-hand scapegoat. At any moment, if anyone questions them or their authority, they could just point to him and say, it's all his fault, he's unclean. This is the context in which Jesus casts out the unclean spirit from the man. Note that the word that's used here is that the spirit is unclean. Not evil, just unclean. Jesus does what the scribes couldn't or wouldn't do. He restores the man back to society by removing from him his uncleanness. We don't talk much in our society about demons and spiritual warfare. And in church life, it is usually the more conservative and charismatic traditions that take such language seriously. I remember as a teenager reading Frank Peretti's novel, This Present Darkness, with its vivid depiction of a world of demons and angels just beyond our sight, fighting for the souls of humans. And I remember thinking when I was about 15 that I found this an unlikely explanation of what Jesus was doing when he cast spirits out from people. 
I think we can get a bit closer to the way in which this language of the demonic functioned in the first century when we use phrases from our world like the demon drink, referring to the addiction of alcohol, or if we speak of someone's battles with poor mental health as them battling their demons, or if we refer to, I don't know, the recent general election campaign as a fight for the soul of the nation. In the first century, it was much more common than it is for us to use the language of spiritual battle to dramatize the conflicts of soul and society, but we do still have that language available to us. This, however, is not to reduce such language to mere metaphor. It rather conjures for us a worldview which we have mostly lost, where the universe consists of two orders, the normal and the demonic. And it's not so much a battle between good and evil or between God and Satan as it is a battle against the human tendency to take God's good creation and mess it up. In the world of the first century, you see, the casting out of the demonic was the restoration of normality. And for the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue, his life had become anything but normal. He couldn't worship normally. He couldn't work. He couldn't have a normal family life. He was condemned by his having been declared unclean to the role of perpetual scapegoat in the synagogue. And Jesus casting out of the unclean spirit this dramatic, sudden declaration of him as clean restored him to normality, to his normal and rightful place within society. The interaction between Jesus and the demon is interesting. The demon speaks to Jesus and says to him, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus silences him and immediately casts the spirit out of the man. And those of you who've done a bit of biblical studies may know that since the early 20th century, scholars have pointed to this and instances like it as uh, a literary feature within Mark, which they call Mark's messianic secret. And it does seem that if you read through Mark, Jesus seems repeatedly to try and silence those who are going to spill the beans on who he is, until we get to a point about halfway through when Peter recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. And whilst there may be something in this as a rhetorical device, I think there's actually a more compelling reason why Jesus silences this demon. I think it's because the demon is trying to label Jesus in an attempt to take away Jesus' authority. You see, the phrase the demon uses of Jesus, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God, that's a priestly title. And if Jesus accepts the priestly title and the holiness that goes with it, the Holy One of God, then Jesus immediately gets sucked into a holiness system controlled by the scribes, which is the whole thing that is keeping people apart on the basis of cleanness and uncleanness and labeling people as outcasts. The demon is trying to root Jesus' authority in the holiness tradition, keeping things apart to keep them pure. And if Jesus had accepted the title Holy One of God, he'd have been unable to exercise the demon because he'd have found himself co-opted into the very system he'd come to overthrow. 
And this is how systems of oppression work. They co-opt and compromise, and they flatter to deceive, and they reward complicity and compliance. The holiness system of the synagogues was built on a foundation of scapegoating the vulnerable. And Jesus' threat to that had to be silenced. And so the demon tried to label Jesus as just another priestly scribe, as compromised and caught up in it all as the rest. But Jesus is having none of it. He silences the demon and then casts him out, demonstrating clearly that his authority to act is very different from that of the scribes. Well, the mob turned to Jesus at this point, although, of course, they will turn on him later in the story. But for now, they're drawn to his teaching, which comes, it seems, with the authority to forgive sins, to cast out demons, and to declare clean those who have been labeled as unclean. And of course, they're drawn to this new and different authority of Jesus. And the authority of the scribes, rooted in the control and manipulation they had built up, starts to erode. And so the demons, which are dependent on the system of the scribes for their very existence, try to counter the power shift, and they misrepresent Jesus as just another bearer of priestly authority. And so Jesus resists and he silences them because the system they have existed within has no power to declare people clean, only unclean. The scribal system creates demons. It doesn't cast them out. Jesus then does something interesting. He heads out into the wilderness to pray. Sometimes I've heard this preached as an example of Jesus going on some kind of spiritual retreat, you know, as if we should all head off into the wilderness every so often to be silent and pray. However, as we've seen in our sermons over the last couple of weeks, available on the podcast if you missed them, just saying, the wilderness in Mark's gospel is always more than just somewhere to be quiet and have a bit of a prayerful think. The wilderness is the place where the prophets go to proclaim their messages of radical transformation. If we watch where Jesus is in the story, he repeatedly ends up in the countryside and the wilderness rather than in the towns. Because the true home of the radical is removed from, rather than enmeshed in, all the compromising complexities of the commercialized urban centers of civilization. You see, Jesus has in mind the radical transformation of society, its religion, its politics, its economics. And this can only be achieved if he keeps himself outside the system. So just as he refuses the priestly title from the lips of the demon, so he makes the point of physically removing himself from the structures of his inherited religious tradition. He goes from the priestly synagogue space to the prophetic space of the wilderness. He's already gone into the wilderness for baptism at the hands of John, and he's gone into the wilderness to be tempted. And in today's reading, he symbolically steps out of the synagogue and back into that wilderness space, removing himself from the violent, sacrificial, scapegoating structures of the synagogue. So when he later steps back into the towns and the holy places, he does so as one who has come to transform them, not as one who has been co-opted by them. 
So Jesus then, once the crowd have tracked him down, comes back into the synagogues in the area, preaching again, casting out demons again, systematically restoring people back to normality by removing the causes of their exclusion and silencing the demons from speaking their lies which would undermine his power to act. And it occurs to me that we live in a society which systematically excludes people. I just don't think that our world is all that different from the world of the scribes in the first century. You see, we too have leaders, both in society and within churches, whose authority is built on populist politics, on the othering of the weak and the vulnerable. You see, I'm not just talking about national politics, although that's clearly there in my mind, for those of you who know me. But we encounter this in church life. Leaders bolstering their popularity by taking grand moral stances on who's going to be in and who's going to be out, dressing it all up as a commendable concern for holiness or a desire to take the Bible seriously. And what happens to those who challenge these ecclesial structures of exclusion, who argue for a kinder way or a more inclusive path, well, they themselves are tainted and scapegoated. They're compromised and co-opted. I mean, you know, I could tell you some stories about some of the stuff that's been thrown at Bloomsbury for our decision to register this church for the solemnization of same-sex marriage. There are people who are arguing very strongly that I should be struck off and that the church should be kicked out of the Baptist Union. And their argument is based on Othering, scapegoating, populist politics, and a desire to take the Bible seriously according to a certain way of reading it. And so we come to our final story in the reading this morning. The man with the skin complaint, who comes to Jesus wanting to be not healed, but made clean. It's interesting, that, isn't it? It's not Jesus, heal me, it's Jesus, you can make me clean. He is unclean. He has been othered by the scribal purity regulations which have excluded him from society and faith. Just as an aside, it's probably not leprosy we're talking about here, you know, the contagious thing that kills people. It's, it's some kind of other skin complaint that just renders him unclean. But his uncleanness means he has become just another convenient scapegoat for all the ills of society. And it occurs to me there are two possible ways that his request could have been answered. Firstly, Jesus could have just healed his skin condition. Secondly, Jesus could have overturned the purity law, which meant that someone with a skin condition was deemed unacceptable and unclean in the first place. And this is where I start to get a bit uncomfortable. Because when I think about the way in which the church has sometimes responded to people who are excluded and othered and scapegoated because of gender or sexuality, it has often done so by abusively using the language of healing. The conversion therapy approach to minority sexuality has a long and profoundly un-Christ-like history of trying to change people away from their God-given natures. So what are we to make of what Jesus does here? 
responding to the man's desire to be made clean by healing him. Is this Jesus selling out on the project of transforming society and faith and simply giving the mob what they demand, yet another miracle? I'm not sure. Jesus is clearly furious here. The Greek is much stronger than the English. The Greek for sternly warning him in verse 43 is probably better translated as growling with fury or snorting with anger. Something has really got to Jesus at this point. It seems to me that Jesus' anger is directed not at the man, but at what the need to heal him represents. At the system of exclusion that has created his uncleanness in the first place. In his case, of course, the skin disease was not an essential characteristic of his person, and so healing him does not do violence to his created nature. So I think we should not perhaps push the analogy with conversion therapy too far. But Jesus clearly only reluctantly addresses the man's symptoms, keeping his eye firmly on the bigger battle with the deeper sickness of a society built on systems of exclusion and scapegoating. So when we in our world encounter those who are othered and set apart and scapegoated, either within church or within wider society, what should our response be? What is the Christ-like path that we can tread? Well, I would just observe, at a personal level, Jesus never does violence to the individual. He always seeks to raise a person up, to remove the barriers to their exclusion, and to restore them to the deep blessings of normal life. And we, too, are called to acts of mercy, of love, and of inclusion. But Jesus' authority to do this was derived, as we have seen, from his own set-apartness, from his intentional resistance to the compromises and rewards that complicity in systems of power can bring. And so we too need to guard our own hearts, to take ourselves to the wilderness from time to time, not just to have a bit of a pray and a bit of a think, but to discover again within our own selves the prophetic voice that calls to us from beyond. And finally, we need to pay attention to ourselves. What is it that we do that makes people unclean in our midst? Who would we exclude? It's an interesting question, isn't it, for a church that has inclusion as one of its key values. Who would we exclude? Who would we say if they walked through the door? I'm sorry, that's one step too far. And we may have our own answers to that in ourselves. The lesson of the scribes, it seems to me, is that whenever anyone is declared unclean, the authority in play is not from God. Divine authority always casts out uncleanness and restores people to community. In God's eyes, there is no one who is unclean. So whoever it was that you had in your mind when I asked that question of where you draw your boundary, and I've got, I've got some answers in my mind, as I'm sure you have. In God's eyes, there is no one who is unclean, and that is profoundly uncomfortable. There is no one who is unwelcome in the kingdom of God. There is no one who deserves to be turned away. 
Today is Epiphany Sunday. It's when the church remembers the revelation of God to the Gentiles, as the wise men from the East came to visit the infant Jesus. And here we discover the same story, rooted in the infancy story of Jesus, which is that God will not be constrained by border and boundary. God transcends ethnicity and social standing. God is for all, for me, for you, for everyone. And that God comes to us in love and peace to bring wholeness, to undo and cast out uncleanness, to draw us together as individuals and as a community. And in a divided world, and the news is very worrying, with nation turning against nation, we need this revelation of God in and through the birth, life and ministry of Jesus, made flesh in our time, through those of us who are the body of Christ in our world. So what does it mean for us to cast out spirits of uncleanness and bring people to wholeness in this city today?